0: Welcome to the Assembly of Yahweh Sermon Podcast. We're so glad you're here. For more information, you can visit hallelujah.org or download the AOY app on Apple or Google Play.
1: The Doctrine of the Trinity. So I would read to you what the Catholic faith says about the Trinity. And the Catholic faith is this that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost." The Father, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. And yet these are not 3 eternals but one eternal. As also there are not 3 incomprehensibles nor 3 uncreated nor 1 uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Ghost Almighty. And yet they are not three Almighty's, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord and yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like us, we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be both God and Lord. So are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say, there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten, The Son is of the Father alone, not made, not created, but begotten." And this goes on for a while, so I won't continue with the reading, but I would just mention that some of this don't seem to make a lot of sense. And uh, some of what I'm going to talk about today is in this book called The Doctrine of the Trinity. Christianity's self-inflicted wound. And uh, Colossians 2 and 8 says, See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy or empty deceit. And uh, I would turn with, if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter twenty. In verse 25. And if perchance some of these things are the first time you've ever heard any of it, I hope that you'll be patient with me. And, and, and obviously, I hope that you'll not be angry with me for saying what is actually just history. And the, the history of how this came about, the history of how it, uh, the early. Church fathers, as it were, came to appreciate a doctrine that is foreign to uh, one God that we should worship. But Paul, speaking in the 20th chapter, in verse 25. And now, behold, I know that all all of you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. He was on his way to uh, Rome to be tried. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of Yahweh, Take heed to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit was made, has made you overseers to care for the assembly of Yahweh, which he obtained with the blood of his own Son. Notice particularly this next verse I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And so he had already seen some of the Greek influence coming into the assemblies already at that point. And so he gave warning to his people and even said that after my departure, things will change and there'll be grievous wolves that come into the flock. Something of interest is that the the first 15 bishops that were in the assembly at Jerusalem They were all circumcised Jews, and they all believed in the Torah. And the congregation over which they presided were united with the idea of the law of Moses and the doctrines of Messiah. And the Jewish converts who laid the foundations of their early assembly Soon found themselves overwhelmed by the religions that were the the many people that were coming into the assembly from the pagan religions. And sadly, so, so many of them did not lay down all of the things that they had learned in their early days. something I also mentioned, I should mention there that I just read. Paul said, I did not fail to speak to you all the counsel of Yahweh. But if you'll notice all the writings of Paul, he never spoke about the Trinity. So you might think about that. that where Where is his writings that he spoke about the Trinity? And some of the things that we just read does that ring, do you re- remember reading that anywhere in the Bible? So, something before we start, I might read some of the things even in the New Testament, much less what's in the Old Testament, but 1 Corinthians 8 and 4, yet for us there is one Elohim, the Father from whom are all things. Sounds like the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 and 4, doesn't it? 2 Timothy 2 and 5. For there is one Elohim. 1 Timothy 1 and 17. He says, the only El. Galatians 3 and 20. For Elohim is One. So that's monotheism, that mono means one, not poly, which means many. Matthew 25 and nine, one father who is in heaven. This was Joshua speaking, Matthew 23 and nine, one father who is in heaven. Romans three and 30, since Yahweh is one, and then he continues with his thought, James two and 19, You believe Yahweh is one, you do well. Something else that I I noticed as I read through this was he points out that if the apostles or Yahshua was not Trinitarians, then why should we be Trinitarians? Some of this that I'm going going to be reading to you because it's kind of a history of the early church of the first 380 years, so to speak. And there were some councils that were brought together to decide certain matters of the early church, the church that turned into the Roman Catholic Church, and that took a matter of many, many years. It didn't happen quickly, but it happened over much time. But I would start with saying long before the founding of Christianity, the idea of a tribunal God or a God in three persons was a common belief in all the ancient, almost all ancient religions. They they had a lot of minor deities, but they distinctly acknowledge that there is one supreme God who consists of three persons. The Babylonians used a triangle to represent this three in one God. And that, by the way, is now the symbol of the modern Trinitarians of today. The Hindu trinity was made up of the gods Bar- Brahma. Vishnu, and Shiva. The Greek triad was composed of Zeus, Athena, and Apollo, and these were said by the pagans to agree in one. That's kind of a common statement today. One of the largest temples built by the Romans were constructed in in present-day Lebanon to the trinity of uh, Jupiter, Mercury, and Venus. In Babylon, the planet Venus was revered as special and was worshiped as the trinity consisted of Venus, the moon, and the sun. This triad became the Babylonian Holy Trinity in the 14th century before Messiah was born. Although other religions worshipped this tribunal, God, for thousands of years before Christ was born, the Trinity was not a part of the Christian dogma and formal documents of the first three centuries after Messiah's ascension. So pay real close attention to that. That did not come into any of the history, come into any of the pages of, uh, of history about the church until of the 3rd century after the ascension of the Messiah and so they speak of the one father supreme the true and only elohim as without beginning invisible unbegotten as such immutable and of the son as inferior and as a real person having a beginning viable begotten immutable So that was the early history of the church, of the assemblies even. And that there was two distinct beings there, the son and then there was the father. And there was no formal established doctrine of the Trinity until the fourth century. And that is fully documented historical fact. You can Google that yourself when you get home tonight or this afternoon, and, and look these things up. It's real simple to do that. And uh, yet, so many people do not, have not put any time in on study of this at all. There was, a, uh, Alvin Lamson wrote The Church of the First Three Centuries. He wrote this book, and so he makes this statement, The Modern Doctrine of the Trinity is not found in any document or relic belonging to the church of the first three centuries. Letters, art, usage, theology, worship, creed, hymn, chant, doxology, commemorative rite, and festive observance, so far as any remains or any record of them or doctrine are absolutely blank. They testify so far as they testify at all to the supremacy of the Father, the only true L, and to the inferior and and derivative nature of the Son. There is nowhere among these remains a co-equal trinity. The cross or the stake is there. The Messiah is there as the Good Shepherd, and the Father is there. But no undivided three, co-equals, infinite, self-existent, and eternal. This was a conception to which the aids had not arrived. It was of a later origin. Even such a liberal source as the New Catholic Encyclopedia states that Trinitarianism, became part of the Christian doctrine in the fourth, not the first century. It is difficult in the second half of the 20th century to offer a clear, objective, and straightforward account of the mystery of the Trinity. And if you do, like I said, and and Google the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, several things you can Google, and you try to make sense of what they say, I would I would challenge you to do that, and see if you can make sense of the thing. Just like this man says, even up to the 20th century, no one can make real sense of it. There is recognition on the part of historians of dogma and systematic theologians that when one does speak of an unqualified Trinitarian, one has moved from the period of Christian origins to the last quadrant of the fourth century. It was only then that what might be called the definitive Trinitarian dogma, one God in three persons, became thoroughly assimilated into the Christian life and thought. So the dogma Dogmatic formula of one God in three persons was the product of three centuries of doctrinal development. Or as it were, uh, the theory of, it's a theory, it's another theory of evolution. It, it, It came from what we call the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy 6 and 4 to now what the Trinitarians I read to you as we begin this talk. There are, however, evidences of some of the concepts being introduced by Christians, converts from paganism, possibly as early as the last part of the first century. And that's part of what the Apostle Paul saw coming down the pike with some of those things that were coming. And the gradual incorporation of pagan ideologies into Christian doctrine and practice came about by the interaction of four historical components. And one, number one, the early apostles who had been strong in their knowledge and application of the word of Yahweh had died. Their steadfastness to Yahweh's doctrine was no longer a living example to the followers. So the ones that had walked with Messiah on this earth, he had taught them hour upon hour, were no longer around to reference. Number two, the anticipation of the speedy return of Messiah subsided in the minds of many Christians as time went on. So, you know, it says... You know, Yeshua spoke of the resurrection and of the coming things of the end time. And as time went on, those things became more vague. And so, and then in three, many pagans who were converted to Christianity still adhered to some of their previous beliefs and practices. Thus, the pure, pure Christian doctrine of the first century was quickly corrupted. And in four, due to the above three elements, many people began anticipating a new revival or a new administration to replace the old. And the political climate was anti-Jewish, and that was because uh, they were not favored by the, the rulers of Rome. and they had rebelled several times and so they had been put down, you know, uh, the, the rebellion of, of 70 A.D., and then also that was when the temple was destroyed, and then later the Barcocheba revolution in 135, I think it was, and so nobody, the, the uh, rulers of Rome, The Caesars did not appreciate this people, and so they did a lot of things. They killed thousands and thousands of them from time to time, and uh, so to be a a Jew meant that you were a second-class citizen of that time and place, and so more and more people wanted to get away from anything that was Jewish. And uh, this author makes a note that the falling away of the Christian church began to take place shortly after the middle of the first century toward the end of Paul's ministry. And uh, here's some things that he wrote to, like Timothy This now knoweth that all they which are in Asia be turned away from us, of whom are Fogelius and Hermogenes. And he also added, "For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed into Thessalonica; Cresna to Galatia; Titus to Dalmatia. So already by the first half of the first century, the major sects had made inroads into Christianity. And then there was the the Gnostics. This sect, this sect had its roots in Greek philosophy and religious ideas. They believed that Yahshua was a deity, his physical body being either just an appearance or something he borrowed temporarily. The Apostle John, according to secular sources, was the only apostle to live late into the first century during which time his contribution to the New Testament were written. The true El had the Gospel of John written to clarify Yeshua's position as the son of Yahweh and the son of man. Since sects such as the Ebonites and the Gnostics were spreading false doctrines of Messiah's position, The Gospel of John established the truth of Yahweh's word, that Yahshua, the Messiah, was the son of Yahweh, not Yahweh the Son, or as they say, God the Son, or God himself. Those terms are not in the scriptures. So with the rise of these very sects, the truth of Yahweh's word became infiltrated by idolatrous worship and theories. <clears throat> Christians gradually accepted the foreign elements, introduced to their teaching because they were not being taught the doctrines of Yahweh's rightly divided word. To see how quickly some of these uh, foreign elements were introduced to Christianity the first or second century their doctrine was written uh, this doctrine was written somewhere between 80 AD and 120 AD so it would be somewhere you know 50 years after Messiah had left this earth and this is uh, this is something that had come into the churches. So let me read it to you. Now, as regards baptism, thus baptize you, having first rehearsed all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if thou hast not running water, baptize in, either, in other water, And if thou cannot find cold, then use warm. But if thou have neither, pour water upon the head thrice in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer and the baptized fast, and any others who can. But the baptized thou shalt command to fast for one or two days before and I'm not saying the baptized, that uh, fasting would not be good but his point here is that and I'll read here as we go along this was the first time that the, the three was put together baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and and uh, if you have a King James Bible, you'll notice also in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 6-8, to it says, This is he that cometh by water and blood, even Yahshua Messiah, and not by water only, but by the water and blood. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Holy Spirit and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. But these verses do not appear in any of the early manuscripts. The words added begin in verse 7 with in heaven and go to the in earth in verse 8. There's about 15 or 16 words there that someone has added. And when it says that these do not appear in the early manuscripts, what it means is if I write you a letter and it has something in it or does not have something in it, and then later on someone makes a copy of that letter and then somebody makes a copy of that letter and as you pass it down, suddenly you find a copy of this letter and it has something that the first letter don't have, you know it was added. And that's how simple this is, and the early manuscript did not have this in it. This was added by someone who wanted to improve the stance of the Trinitarian's doctrine. And this is easily verified if you want, it's a footnote in almost any Bible that you have, unless it's the older King James. And even some of them have a footnote that said this is not found in earlier manuscripts. And so he goes on to say that these words are found in only four Greek manuscripts before the 16th century. And these contain the passage that in what appears to be a translation from a late rendition of the Latin Vulgate. The early manuscripts manuscripts read like this. For there are three that bear record, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. That was what was there originally. And then they added the other 15 to 17 words. And this did not appear in the manuscripts until somewhere around the, the 16th century. And so uh, since the corruption of First John had not yet occurred by the 4th century, promoters of—so this didn't happen until the 16th century— and so in the fourth century, the promoters of the Trinity, uh, they needed something else. And so they, in your Bible, they also, if you read in Matthew 28 and 19, it says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And these verses appear in all manuscripts after the fourth century, by which time the Trinity doctrine had become a part of the formal doctrine and writing. It would not have been difficult for scribes to insert in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost in place of the original, in my name. This must have been what happened because earlier manuscripts from which Eusebius, who died in 340 AD, quoted in the early part of the fourth century could not have used the Trinitarian words. He, he cited Matthew 28, 19, 18 times without once using uh, that phrase, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That was not in there, but he was guilty as many, or he had political pressure applied to him. He goes on and says there are only two manuscripts from the fourth century which contain Matthew twenty eight nineteen and none from previous centuries. In the fourth century Eusebius was asked by the Emperor Constantine to make fifty copies of the New Testament. None can be found today. Most likely they have been amended, mutilated, lost, or destroyed. But the eighteen times that Eusebius quoted the passage correctly are found in his writings prior to the Council of Nicaea where the subject of the person of Messiah was brought to a head. After the Council, Eusebius quoted it three times using the Trinitarian formula which shows the political and religious impact of the Nicaean decision. Justin Martyr, the Christian who wrote in the middle of the second century never quoted that verse that way. Whenever he quoted it, he never had in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Nor did some other famous people that he mentions here. And so his supposition is that it was not in the earlier manuscripts. Manuscripts. And Justin Martyr, he was one of the first church fathers and he lived from 114 to 165. And he was one of the first to speak of Yeshua as pre-existing. And though he acknowledged that not all of his fellow believers shared that view. So furthermore, regarding water baptism, there is no record in the New Testament that the Trinitarian baptismal command was ever carried out by the first century church. They always baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. So in Acts 2 and 38, then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Yeshua Messiah for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts eight sixteen, For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Master Yeshua. Acts 10 and 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Master, or in the name of the Messiah. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days longer. Acts 19 and 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the master or the Messiah, Yeshua. It is understanding how early scribes could change the words in my name to in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost in existing manuscripts since the Godhead was taking on a tribunal nature in their religious environment. So during those uh, formative years uh, the, the 300 years that we're speaking of that was when the atmosphere was right to be a, to make a change of that kind but the attempt to uh, suppress the early church came to an end when Constantine came to power and he came to power. Uh, <coughs> Somewhere around three twelve, and some <clears throat> thirteen years later, he didn't like the idea of, of having uh, political uh, unrest over a doctrinal issue. He became a Christian, even though he was he grew up being a sun worshiper, and he never seemed to have gotten away from it even throughout his life. If you read his his history, he even though <clears throat> the one of the things that you might not realize, you probably do, but is that a lot of times the the pagans would come into the Christianity, but they were so used to worshiping many gods that they didn't think anything of worshiping Yahweh and other gods. That was normal to them because that's where they grew up. That's how their whole society was. And so that's what happened to Constantine. He didn't mind being a Christian but that didn't mean that he couldn't go outside of that as well and uh, so 13 years later he, he convened a uh, a session to figure this out is Yahshua a God the God or who is he in relation to the Father Meanwhile, anyway, he issued an edict in Milan which granted Christians the same right as followers of other religions. And Constantine soon began to grant special favors to Christians which made conversion to Christianity a ticket to political, military, and social promotions. So he, he, since he was a Christian, he began, to, he began to give them favors and make laws in favor of them. And so pretty soon, some people would join the church just so they'd have a political advantage or advantage of, like he said, military. Maybe you get a promotion where you used to not. And uh, so thousands of non-Christians began joining the church for political favors. But in return for granting special favors and acting with leniency, Constantine insisted that he have a strong voice in church affairs so early in the fourth century he wanted to find out the idea of the yeshua being co-equal with god the father and began to gain a wider base of support and yet there was a there was a whole group many that did not support that idea and so He uh, wanted to bring everybody together and so he assigned Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, Egypt and his presbyter, Arius. And Bishop Alexander taught that Yeshua was equal with Yahweh. Arius did not. So his, his helper didn't agree with him on this point. So at a meeting held at Alexandria in 321, Arius was deposed and excommunicated from this church. And Arius, although not in church disfavor, still had much support outside of Egypt. Let me read that again. Arius now was in disfavor with the church, but he still had much support outside of Egypt. Many of the important bishops, such as the learned historian Eusebius of Palestine and his powerful namesake Eusebius, bishop of Nicomedia, theologically agreed with Eris, and that is that Yahshua is not God. And uh, Constantine, he became disturbed over this continuing controversy, and he didn't didn't like that. So he sent his religious advisor. I don't know how to say this guy's name, O-S-S-I-U-S. Ossius, Bishop of Cordova. He sent him to Alexandria on a mission of reconciliation and inquiry. And after visiting Alexandria, he returned to Rome and embraced Alexander's position, which was that Yeshua was God. To legitimate his position, Constantine invited all bishops of the Christian church to N- see. Nisi- Thus the Council of Nicaea began with its main goal being to settle the dispute over the relationship between Yahweh and his son. And so this, take, this was in 325. So, you know, we're almost 300 years after Messiah's ascension that this is taking place. And this is a famous uh, council it brought together like 220 bishops. And I'd like to very carefully read about this proceedings. Constantine, who was in control of the proceedings, used his political power. Now, it didn't, it didn't seem to even matter to Constantine which side of the thing he fell down on. He just wanted his, his uh, advisor, his religious advisor, to tell him which way he should go on this. And so he he went down to Alexander, Egypt, and talked with Alexander, the Bishop Alexander, and he took his position and decided it was the right position, I guess. And he came back and told Constantine this. So Constantine adopted that for his own uh, theological thinking. And so here is how it went. And Constantine, who was in control of the proceedings, used his political power to bring pressure to bear on the bishops to accept his theological position. The creed they signed was clearly anti Assyrian, or the opposite of the guy that they excommunicated. In other words, the creed of Nicaea embraced the son as co equal with God. 218 of the bishops signed this creed, although it was actually the work of a minority that put it together. And out of 220, 218 of them signed this position. The Encyclopedia Botanica summarizes the proceedings of the Council of Nicaea as following. The Council of Nicaea met on May 20th of 325, Constantine himself presiding, actively guiding the discussion, and personally proposed, no doubt on this verse prompting, the council formula expressing the relationship of Messiah to El. And in the creed issued by the council, of one substance with the father overawed by the emperor the bishops with only two exceptions signed the creed many of them against their their own inclination even though that was not necessarily where they stood on it previously he was He had such a powerful talk, and he probably used all his political power he got them to go along with what he said out of two hundred and twenty, there was only two that descended descents, that disagreed and uh, so he put he put quite a bit of pressure on everybody so Constantine regarded this decision as inspired divinely inspired, and as long as he uh, lived, no one dared to question that or change it. But there still remained great dissension among many of the clergy about the deity of Yeshua. So in the year 381 AD, this was after Constantine was not around anymore, a second council met in Constantinople. This council adopted the Nicene Creed, stating that I'll just read it like it said: Jesus and God were co-equal and co-eternal, and also declared the deity of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit didn't show up till 381, which it seems kind of odd to me that it didn't. I mean, it didn't become official part of the church until the year 381, even though. Yeshua had become equal with God in 325. That does seem kind of an odd thing, doesn't it? Why didn't they all come in together? But they had this other uh, council, and like I say, this is all history. It's not something that I'm just making up, but it's very interesting. And the council adopted, and they declared the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Trinity, was then fully established and thus became the cornerstone of Christian faith for the next 1500 years up until today clearly historians of the church dogma and systematic theologians agree that the idea of a Christian trinity was not a part of the first century church the twelve apostles never subscribed to it or received revelations about it so how then did a Trinitarian doctrine come about. It gradually evolved and gained momentum in the late first, second, and third centuries as pagans who had converted to Christianity brought to Christianity some of their pagan beliefs and practices. The doctrine explicitly stating Jesus is God was confirmed at Nicaea in 325 by the church bishops out of political pressure. and so in 3 uh, 381 this was reaffirmed and also from that point on was the deity the deity of the holy spirit was established and since that time the god in three person doctrine has been adhered to although it, as though it had divine revelation And so, uh, approximately 350 years after Yeshua's ascension, we get the doctrine of the Trinity. One of the things that I noticed in our reading today, I'd like to read what it says there. I think it was the last little part that Seth read in chapter 14. Because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. This was Joshua speaking. I guess he was not a Trinitarian. I don't know. And uh, I'd also like to read some of the things that From Mark chapter 12 and verse 29, this is always a good one to read. You know, Yeshua was well versed in the scriptures. He many times confounded the scribes and Pharisees because he knew them better than they did. one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well they were always trying to trap him in some of his words and so this one scribe came up and uh, you know the scribes were well versed in the Torah they just didn't like keeping it because they were the ones that copied it so they had a good understanding of what was in it they just didn't always do what was in it but one of the scribes that did, that was his job of copying the Torah, he heard them disputing, and he said, asked this question, which commandment is the first of all? And this is Yahshua speaking. He answers, and he answers from Deuteronomy. Of course, it was not, they don't have, he didn't say Deuteronomy 6.4, because they didn't have the, they just had, it was just a continual document, but that's what we call it, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. The first is, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So I thought he answered well. John 20 and 17 Uh, this was the Apostle John, who lived far into the first century. What did I say? Seventeen? And Yahweh said to her, Do not, this was after his ascent, after his resurrection from the grave, before he had ascended. Yahshua said to her, Do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, to my Father, and your Father, to my Elohim, and your Elohim. So it seems strange that Yeshua considered Yahweh his Elohim if he was co equal and co God with him. That would not make a lot of sense, that statement, then, would it? John 17 and 3. And this is eternal life, that they know thee, the only true El. And Yahshua Messiah, whom Thou hast sent. So He's very explicit, but they are not one and the same, or three and one, or whatever. He's very careful to to say the one, the only, true El. John. Uh, Well, I I guess I won't read that. But, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity became stronger and stronger as it went down through the ages. Many people that did not believe that were put to death because they did not believe that. I have a book here. It's called The Doctrine of the Trinity, as I mentioned earlier. In fact, I have some copies of it if anybody would like to. Have one. I mean, it has some excellent things in it. I would, I would think that anyone would want to know. But it's the uh, there's a story in here about John Biddle. Uh, He was uh, considered the father of English anti-Trinitarians. And, of course, this has a lot of the people that gave. It tells the stories of the people that gave their life because they did not believe in the Trinity, the Trinity. And remember, this was something that just came about because Constantine dictated that we need to make a rule for everybody. And then he made the wrong choice. But John Biddle... He was educated in Oxford, and he said of himself that he embarked on an impartial search of the Scriptures. In other words, he wanted to know what they said regardless of what he had previously been taught. And he began to question and receive church doctrine. From 1641 to 1645, Biddle was headmaster of the Cripps School in Goldchester. It was during this period that his close study of the New Testament caused him to come disaffected or dissatisfied with the doctrine of the Trinity. The matter was of such serious nature that the magistrates issued an order for his arrest and imprisonment. Following a debate with Archbishop Usher, Biddle summed up the results of his study of early Christianity. And here was just a short synopsis of one of the things he thought. The fathers of the first two centuries or thereabouts when the judgments of Christians were yet free and not enslaved with the determinations of councils asserted the father only to be the one God. I mean, he used English a little different than we would use it, so let me say it like you would in Texas. For the first two centuries, everybody that wasn't held in check or enslaved with the councils of Nicaea and the council of Constantinople asserted that the father is one God. That's what he said. Biddle complained that the Greek philosophical language of the creeds was the first, was first hatched by the subtlety of Satan in the heads of Platonists to pervert the worship of the true El. So after he said that, Parliament lost no time in ordering that Biddle's work to be burned. And he pa- they passed in what was called the Deconian Ordinance for the punishment by death of blasphemies and heresies, aimed at Bidens claim that Trinitarian doctrine introduced three gods and so subverts the unity of Elohim. So frequently incalculated in Scripture, they didn't want that to be out there that there's only one. They wanted it to stay with the Trinitarian doctrine. For who is there, if at least he dare make use of reason in his religion, who seeth not that this is as ridiculous as one would say, Peter is an apostle, James an apostle, John an apostle? Yet there are not three apostles, but one apostle. That was one of his arguments. And so in 1655, Biddle was committed to the Newgate prison for publicly denying that Jesus Christ was the Almighty or the Most High God. Supporters of Biddle were quick to point out that all Christians must be considered guilty of death by Parliament For this reason For he saith That the Messiah died He saith that Messiah was not God For God could not die But every Christian saith That Messiah died Therefore every Christian saith That Messiah was not God I don't know if you followed that last bit of reasoning, but in other words, an eternal God could not die. And yet you claim that Yeshua had to die, so that in itself would prove that he is not God. And uh, though only 47 years old, Biddle had spent nearly 10 years of his life in prison for his insistence, that Yahweh was a single person. He died in prison in 1662, a victim. It's called Odium something other, And the filthy conditions of the place to which he was lodged, or the prison. And he goes on to talk about Sir Isaac Newton and John Locke and some of these famous men that also did not believe in the Trinity. Thomas Jefferson was one. And it's very interesting, once you start studying the history of some of these things, how far we have come from the simple truths that were taught throughout Scripture. I might even read one of those simple truths from Psalms. If you would bear with me, let's read from Psalms. 83 83 and verse 18 Let them know that thou alone whose name is Yahweh art the most high over all the earth Thank you
0: We got two more bridges at the end, Sebastian, and then one chorus, I think. Sounded cool. Sounding drum kit. <laughs> Where are you starting us, Ruben? did say the player was <laughs> Where better. Where are we starting? Uh, I say we come out of that last chorus before we revamp. That For o- the os yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Do uh. Someone do the melody on that, and then I'll do the O's. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go into that do yeah. it one more time, and then we'll go from there. Same place. Oh, just huh. Same place. Yeah. Starting? Can sing his praise again